this is Mike Dilt with the Relax Back UK show on UK Health Radio, your global real feel-good radio station. On the Relax Back UK show we explore all kinds of health topics, so keep listening and enjoy the ride. Hello and thank you for joining me, Mike Dilk, on this week's Relax Back UK show. We have some wonderful guests for you this week. Tim Coates is a farmer and a banker. He explains some of the ways in which farming contributes to global warming, but equally how farming methods can reduce the impact they have and how banks can be involved as well. And it's the fact that um, nitrous oxides uh, have a higher warming quotient than carbon dioxide does. So they're about 250 times more warming than carbon dioxide. Amongst much else, he talks about how the use of fertiliser and its global warming ways can be reduced. He also addresses and sorts out the bad press that poor old cows get from farting and belching methane. Then this week is Chiropractic Awareness Week and Catherine Quinn, president of the British Chiropractic Association, talks about first care practitioners as a way of relieving stress on our overworked GPs. Particularly this week, we're looking to shine a spotlight on how we can work more closely with our primary care providers like the NHS, because there are huge pressures um, on the NHS to hit targets and they've got large patient rosters and we're looking to help alleviate those waiting times. So please do stay with me for a great show. Thank you. The station that makes you feel good. It used to be hard to find the world's most wonderful alcohol-free drinks. Not anymore. Whether it's a health thing, a lifestyle thing, or you're trying new things, make sure you save yourself from the guessing game of the supermarket shelves and shop with zerozilchsip.co.uk for the world's most carefully curated range of alcohol-free beers, wines, spirits and more. Health Radio listeners can save 5% using the code HEALTH5. Visit zerozilchsip.co.uk because nothing's better. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. So the first topic today is reducing the impact of farming on climate change and how banks can maybe help with that process. Tim Coates is co-founder of Oxbury Bank and also a farmer. So I started by asking him, that's kind of an odd combination of jobs. How did you get to do both? And are you still both a banker and a farmer? Uh, I am still both. And um, I, I, I think uh, I... I I cheated a little bit in the sense I was born to one of them. So I was, I was born to farming. Uh, okay. So from a family farming background. And um, it's not necessarily atypical that quite often, um, you know, when, you, when, you're, when you're coming of age and reaching the end of your education, that there's not necessarily an obvious opportunity on farm for you straight away. So you go off and do something else. Um, in, in my case, uh, you know, to the, to the city and to finance um, and, and all sorts of things linked to that. Um, and then, you know, several several years uh, in decades later uh, it's um it's time to come back to the farm next generation in succession and um 
uh, I was looking for a way of sort of, you know, combining uh, all the experience I had uh, from the finance industry uh, and um, applying that applying that to farming. And um, well, Oxbury Bank was, was was founded when I met some other people who also thought that um, it was about time that farmers got uh, a new bank that really worked on building good quality uh, people-based relationships again with farmers as the customers right. um, and that could deploy um, all of the innovation that being made in modern technology in, in relation to financial services um, to offer a really compelling, quick, easy to use um, service with uh, an offering that actually was bespoke and tailored to the slight idiosyncrasies that you get in uh, farming finance and, and the challenge of managing a cash flow in a farming business, which is um, for pretty obvious reasons, pretty linked to the seasons, um, yeah. and 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 also is multi-annual, what with uh, various growing cycles, etc. So it's um, yeah, it, it, it was it was an idea whose time had come, um, right. and so we so we launched we launched a bank um, uh, about eighteen months ago now. I guess we were sort of you know fully live, and um, yeah, we've had some so a really good sort of launch into the market, uh, working to build up a, a committed customer base that we're we're, we're ho- hoping to support with the. Uh, transition that you know british agriculture in fact global agriculture has to go on now if we're going to meet um all of the net zero goals of uh 2050 and beyond yeah all right well with your background in both those areas it really does seem like you're perfectly placed for me to pick your brains on this topic so let let me start off with you know kind of the, the big question um which is you know is the production of food is that more of a climate changer than all our burning of fossil fuels is it well? I, I think we've anyone, got a, a few things here. Does anyone know that? <laughs> does anyone know that? So I, I think we have to look at what we, what we want, and, and by that I mean as a society. Well, clearly we all need to eat, so we need to produce food. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's just let's just take that as a given. Um, and obviously, uh, like all of the economy, so it's not just about agriculture. All of the economy, uh, you know, over the past you know, hundreds of years since the industrial revolution, has been fossil fuel based. So agriculture is no particular difference in that sense. Uh, the difference is, of course, that we know that agriculture has been around for quite a bit longer than that, um, and that it's a bit more complicated than that. So, and I think an interesting sort of thing to note in particular is that um, uh, as relates uh, the production uh, in agriculture, a lot of the greenhouse gas emissions are not carbon-based. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they tend to be uh, the, the, the vast majority of emissions from agriculture are nitrogen based, and that's um, because, again, post-war, uh, so post post the Second World War, uh, the general approach to agriculture has been essentially the exploitation of nitrogen rather than the exploitation of carbon. Um, okay. So, what is that? That's fertilizer, is it essentially? It's it's predominantly fertilizer. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And it's the way that fertilizer and fertilizers, because there is more than one type, obviously, uh, it's the way that they um, react with both the air and the soil uh, and the impact that has uh, on air quality and water quality. Uh, And it's the fact that um, nitrous oxides uh, have a higher warming quotient than carbon dioxide does. So they're about 250 times more warming than carbon dioxide. So nitrous oxides are produced when fertilizer is put on fields. Is that is that right? 
uh well it's just it's 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 I might so need a various a chemistry lesson too so yeah various I'll, I'll try and keep it very very high level the various forms of nitrogen based fertilizers when they are uh applied to fields um they they oxidize a lot of them <laughs> uh in and with the with with the air and so uh it's a it's an efficiency thing so not all of the nitrogen that is applied to field is taken up by the plant essentially right. some of it leaches into the soil and not becomes nitrates that leach into water courses potentially and some of it oxidizes and goes into the air as nitrous oxide okay all right and can that can that be avoided when you're using fertilizer just like use less fertilizer or is it uh, is yeah. that just part of the deal of using fertilizer? Yeah, ab absolutely it's a, a no, no, absolutely, absolutely, it can be, and there is there's a lot of uh, expertise uh, that is in place and being used uh, in farms across the UK and across the world in uh, what's called nitrogen use efficiency. So ensuring that the nitrogen uh, fertilizer products are being applied at the right time in the right way, uh, that only the amount that's needed is being applied. Uh, and all these kinds of things that involves sort of precision agriculture, really determining what the state of quality of a crop in a field is is like when it's being applied, um, to ensure that you know you're actually only applying when you need to. Um, there's a whole range of um, soil chemistry that's uh, analysis that's going on to determine um, the amount of available um, other you know there's other 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 chemicals obviously needed by plants, the amount of available um, chemistry that's available for plants, so that you you know. Basically, uh, again, anything you apply, hopefully, is not excess and therefore isn't being oxidised and going into the air or isn't leaching as nitrate. Yeah. It's the well, short, I mean, short version of it. Yeah. Well, presumably, <laughs> fertiliser is very expensive stuff. And uh, I, I can yeah. imagine uh, farmers keen to be as efficient as they possibly can and, and not, you know, chuck money, literally chuck money away onto their fields. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, there's, you know... I, no farmer is ever wanting to chuck money away onto their fields. Let's be, let's be clear, that's never been true, whether or not you know, fertilizer is as expensive as it is today, which is at record highs, or, or whether it's been whether it's been when it's been cheaper in the past. So sure. you know, there's there's no never never a desire for wastage here. Yeah. Um the recent price rises and in particularly increasing price rises that are going on at the moment have of course focused attention. So all of those uh, methodologies that I was talking about, you know, there's more and more uh, adoption of those approaches to ensure. Uh, efficient use of what fertilizer uh, one can afford but also uh, it is leading to people to look at the various alternative approaches that that can be used um, now that's that's about moving away from inorganic fertilizer so ammonium nitrates or etc etc and using or organics by which i mean various um uh various things that come out of the back of various animals shall we say uh, which is obviously a different approach yeah um uh, and of course, actually using um, the available nitrogen that is captured by other plants. So there are various plants that are nitrogen fixes. So they capture it from the air and deposit it in the soil. Um, this this so is crop rotation, you, I think, isn't it? I'm, I'm sure exactly, I crop rotation. Yeah. history lessons, oddly, crop rotation systems. Exactly, crop rotation or even what's called companion cropping. So actually there's more than one crop in the ground at any given point in wow. time, okay. one, of, one of which is a nitrogen fixer. So for example, uh, a very common use of that is clover. Clover fixes nitrogen from the atmosphere into the soil. Uh, if you're growing that alongside, say, a cereal crop, which needs that nitrogen, there is, um, you know, via, via, via the root mechanisms of both plants through the soil, there will be the transfer of nitrogen that way. Yeah. So can, they, can these kind of methods um, pretty much do away with the need for fertilizer or just reduce it dramatically or, or a bit of both? Right. So, the, so the jury's a little bit out on that at the moment because uh, what we're really talking about here is can you maintain the output levels, so the yield of any given crop without using uh, 
the levels of fertilizer that have been used in the past. So that's mm. that's what that's what everyone's trying to assess at the moment. Um, I would say that the science is continuing to evolve in that. I think there are people who will argue both both ends of that spectrum. There are some who say absolutely you, you can maintain yield without the use of inorganic fertilizer, and there'll be others who say no that you can't. So that comes comes back to my opening point, which is well, we all need to eat. We all need to try and uh, produce food in a way that's affordable for the population. Um, and to do that, we need to maintain a certain level of output. Yeah, sure. Okay. Let me ask you a, um, a question which is potentially slightly more detailed. In a previous life, uh, I was a civil engineer. Um, and I remember uh, in my studies at university talking about treatment works, sewage treatment works, and the byproduct from those. Um, being sold to farmers to spread on their fields. Um, and then there have been difficulties with that because sometimes that's contaminated. Um, but does that does that happen at all? Does the, the kind of the end result, which is like a sort of a, a cake from yep. the sewage from sewage treatment plants, does that get used on fields? Yes, it does, is the short answer. Now um uh it it does by some and it doesn't by others uh for a whole range of different reasons as you say um there was a reason there was a period of time where the uptake that was very high you've already mentioned there were some issues around certain contaminants that meant, meant yeah. that a lot of people backed away from doing that um it's it's still it's it's i say it still goes on which almost sounds like i'm being um uh, negative about it i don't think it has to be a negative thing uh again it's it's all about the timing and method of application um, right. it's it's you know as i say you know it's it's no different to, to using um you know slurry from cattle or chicken litter from poultry sheds it's yeah. it's another it's another animal byproduct fundamentally um that if used in an appropriate way is perfectly appropriate to be used um, and it's okay. a good use of things because the, alter the alternative of course is uh and this has this is a genuine problem uh because of the massive underinvestment by the water companies in sewage treatment uh, in recent decades um they are discharging now from sewage treatment plants into into our rivers uh and and polluting them quite significantly yes. um so um you know waste management shall we call it that needs to be um run effectively at that level uh agriculture has actually a really important role to play not just in potential offtake of that if there's if there's if there's a byproduct to use but also about the main, the maintenance of the natural environment around those uh, watercourses uh, and the treatment plants themselves. There's there's a, a vast amount of really interesting research in what's called wet systems WET, uh, which are natural based, which is actually to use the power of um, of plants, essentially trees in particular, um, around uh, watercourses to uh, and around sewage treatment plants to essentially clean uh, the water as it passes through. Uh, before it even reaches the watercourse, so there's there's lots of interesting things that can be done there. That's like a secondary or tertiary part of the treatment of sewage, is it? Using, yeah, it could be. Yeah, okay. can be. Can it's been again probably need, needs much more investment in these these what are called nature based solutions. Yes. Um, but um, it's uh, but it's actually you know hard hard grey infrastructure is not as powerful as uh, you know frankly a live green infrastructure. You only have to look at some of the recent flooding 
um, that happened in Yorkshire off the back of the recent storms. Uh, yeah. So in Sheffield, they've got a rate. So we've got away from agriculture a bit here, but we've um, in Sheffield they have something called suds uh, systems, uh, yeah. which essentially include natural elements to the uh, to the to the flood sort of management, uh, and they are much more effective because they include a green nat- natural based alive element and soils that help manage the water flows. Uh, far better than if it was just hard grey infrastructure. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this is about land management, which often involves farmers as well, because you know they. they well, well, of course, it does. I mean, seventy percent, seventy percent of the land in the UK is is in British agriculture. Yeah, yeah right. Let, yeah. We we mentioned waste a, a, a couple of times. Um, on these sorts of topics, it seems impossible not to talk about cattle and their waste and their methane. Maybe not just cattle, chickens as well. Um, mm. Now, everybody talks about this with a little bit of a smirk of, oh, you know, cows fart, cows belch, it makes methane. But is is that actually, is it a real problem? And is can we do anything about it other than have fewer cattle? Um, I think there's two ways to approach this question. So one is about the intent, is it about intensity? Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. One, one is about intensity. Um and that I think is also about um, distribution. So, I think what again has happened f- for economic reasons that you know no one's no one's been setting out to uh, cause any form of negative environmental output, but for economic reasons, it has made much more sense to specialise in farming and run you know essentially very simple monoline units. So just raising cattle, just raising poultry, just right. doing arable cropping. Actually, I think what we're seeing is that uh that's taking things away from the more natural state where of course animals and plants would be more integrated across a wider area um and uh and so you don't get those you know build up of you know uh waste that then has to be managed now you can manage that on a small scale there's no reason that you know um you know if in clearing out poultry sheds that that waste can't be quite quickly uh transferred to a to a nearby we say arable farm they don't have to be the same unit um but uh, the other point about that is that kind of tells us a little bit of lesson about natural cycles. So uh, the natural methane cycle, which is a re- is a re- is a real thing, um, essentially says that the impact of any one cow, let's say a dairy cow or a cattle store, uh, is is minimal. So yes, there is an impact from uh, ruminant agriculture in terms of methane emissions but it is due to the intensity of how it operates. And let's be really clear here. The the biggest offenders of that are the uh, American Brazilian feedlot approaches. So concentrated animal feedlots, they're called, um, over there where, you know, those those animals, they're not seeing fields in the way that uh, our image here in the UK is of farming. Uh, So we have, you know, a pretty extensive uh, approach to raising uh, cattle in particular. You know, our beef cattle are, you know to to a large degree most of the time they're outside most of the time they're pasture fed um and the impact in, from a methane perspective from them is 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 negligible it's it's a distraction you know right uh, and i think i think a lot of a lot of the a lot of the um emissions profile from agriculture is a distraction from other sectors frankly uh, even at cop 26 when the methane accord was uh, was agreed you know the fundamental area where that is directed unsurprisingly is still at natural gas production Right. Because that is the biggest contributor to methane emissions, and methane methane needs to be addressed. Absolutely, it does. But it's you know blaming it on the cow is um is, is ridiculous. There's, there's it is unfair, and you know there's a very popular phrase in farming which is it's not the cow, it's the how. 
um okay. and and the approach we have in the uk which is you know again is done to the highest animal welfare standards in the world is actually you know a, a, a fully sustainable approach in terms of rearing uh a ruminant livestock okay right so let, let's come on to um the, the involvement of the bank um you, you said there was a statistic you said earlier 70 percent of the land in the uk is farmed is that is that that's yeah amazing. that's right and if yeah, and a further ten percent is is under forestry management as well. So that's eighty percent. Um, and you know, the the, the I, I I raise that because uh, again, there's been this other specialization uh, approach that's happened again over sort of you know the last seventy odd years of forestry and farming not necessarily meeting when actually they should be more integrated practices. But uh, and, and that brings me on to trees. Yes, <laughs> um, talk about trees. Uh, for a bit. Uh, yeah, it brings us trees. You see, because the because the role of the role of uh, of farming and forestry in terms of being able to meet, for example, not not just meet the government's tree planting targets because they're ambitious, but actually because they're they'll make a difference in terms of the ability to put again uh, natural uh, processes to work, nature based solutions. At the moment, until some of these very interesting and excitive and technological schemes that around direct carbon capture out of the air are necessarily in place if indeed that's the right answer you know the tree is still pretty much the most effective way we have of getting carbon dioxide um out of the air into uh biomass and into and and, and into the soil yeah. uh where it can be you know permanently and I, I use that word sort of you know in 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 not absolute but very long time scales stored um uh which is you know it's it's an important thing you know to get tr trees in the ground uh again farm farms and farmers are in a really good place to be able to do that and actually to integrate uh all of the other benefits that you get from planting trees into their into their operations and, yeah, so, and sure. we at the bank we at the bank are very supportive of that you know if anyone's interested in uh forestry or agroforestry schemes on their farms we are, we, we, we are you know very uh ready and willing and able to lend to do that yeah so, so how, obvious how does, benefits how in doing so how does the bank get involved so essentially if you if you're a bank that looks caters to farmers uh, you're catering to people that look after 70 percent of the land in the uk so they come to you and say right I, I i need some money for a particular project do you then assess the project and say well actually i'm not sure this is really the way ahead um, as far as uh, producing climate changing uh gases etc or making uh keeping flooding under control or whatever it might be and hence try and um control or cajole what farmers get up to is, is, is that more or less how it works so uh it's not exactly how it works but i'll, I'll try and i'll try and recontextualize that so first of all i'd like to say that we don't firstly i'd like to say we we're not we're not judgmental in our approach so we we don't uh judge anyone from what what they have been doing or or maybe doing today or or, or even what they might be planning per se um we're about trying to work with farmers to ensure that their business is um financially sustainable for the long term uh, and that highly correlates with it being environmentally sustainable for the long term right so the two things go hand in glove in that sense and let, let's um, face it if you're lending money to someone you would like it to be uh, financially 
a very s- strong for the long term otherwise you well, absolutely be you know we're, we're lending we're lending over we're lending over a period of decades right and again if you look at all of the sort of climate scenario projections of what the world might look like in 2050 um you know we we you know we do have a view on for example if temperatures have risen if you know there is there's higher uh levels of rainfall if there is more frequent extreme weather events what's the impact of that on agriculture unsurprisingly things like floods and droughts and storms do impact farming quite significantly so we need to consider you know the resilience of that business that's coming to us wanting to borrow uh against those kinds of time frames and we and we do do that we run scenario analysis within the bank that looks looks out to that length of time uh to consider what the what the environment might look like um but we're about um working with farmers to lend to improve efficiency of production uh, which is generally good from an emissions profile um, about um, adaptation of again nature-based solutions things like tree planting things like water management into their farm products um, some very direct renewable energy products we do we fund solar for example on farm it's a very you know good way of getting you know solar into the grid in, in mix is to put it on farm buildings mm-hmm. lots of nice roof space there for example what about um, solar on fields i see a lot of that that seems like a waste of a field uh, it can and can't be is this is the short answer to that so actually there's quite a lot of integrated solar and livestock systems um so oh, really? a lot of that you might not okay. yeah absolutely there's there's a number of those where you know you have you know actually sheep sheep are, sheep are grazing underneath the solar panels uh that's actually quite useful the cables. To, no no it's just all a bit more sensible than that and actually it's quite it's, it's not just that's good for that's good for the uh that's good for the sheep as well as for the solar panels and as far as the you know the sheep are there and controlling the you know the the the, the you know grass around the solar panels which obviously keeps them less effective but actually it's really important for sheep to have places to shelter from from various forms of weather and solar panels provide that shelter so actually it's quite a good it's actually quite a good example of um uh, of of a sort of you know uh, technology and nature uh, relationship there um yeah yeah so um but we we do it i mean we're looking at a number of ways in the bank to incentivize behaviors though so we are looking at ways that we can uh, structure our lending such that we can incentivize good behavior mm-hmm. um so you know that is that is actually talking about um preferential rates and or uh rates that become preferential upon certain key performance indicators being met with respect to emissions can you give an, a simple example of a key performance so, indicator? well a simple example to that is that um you know if you if if we lend uh to a farm and they are able to provide us with a an existing sort of baseline of their existing emissions and they say well the purpose of the lending that we're doing here should help us reduce our emissions we project you know by year five by whatever amount it is actually if they achieve that we can talk we can talk to them about you know maybe the the rate of the loan also decreasing at that point in time all yeah. other things being equal so we're, we're just investigating those kinds of products and hope to be hopefully doing something with that later in the year likewise we're we're you know we're investigating um working with a third party to do assessments on what we talked about earlier new sufficiency if a farmer can show year on year those kinds of improvements there's there's two good things happening there one uh, there's the lower emissions profile but two of course um they're being more efficient in the way they're managing their their cost base because they're yeah. using less fertilizer um so there's again it goes back to that financial resiliency point um we're working with a third party who the, the third party is willing to incentivize via payments that change um and we're looking at using you know farms that are operating under that protocol as a lower risk for us and therefore again we can offer them preferential rates so right. you know this is about working with farmers but also the wider sector who are, who are looking 
you know, the agribusiness sector looking at how to ensure that we can meet the goals that we need to do, which is, you know, a resilient sector. So that's one which works in harmony with nature, but one that's also financially resilient and continues to provide high quality, nutritious food uh, at the level that's needed for the population. Excellent. And are you finding generally that your, you know, your customers are up for it? Your, your farmers are really, uh, your customers who are farmers are really interested in this and want to find out more and get on board? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, there's a, a sort of, uh, I would say the country file image of farming is not necessarily always accurate, shall we say. Uh, you know, farmers are business people, they are entrepreneurs, they are innovators, they're very early adopters of of technology um, across a range of things. Uh, if it makes good business sense, if it can ensure that they can run their business profitably, and they can run their business effectively. Um, you know, there's a there's a lot of willingness to, to to take that up, and again, that's why you know going back to the ethos of the bank, we've built it you know with a strong technology foundation so that we can you know ride the technology improvements that come along, but also um, enables us to have you know knowledgeable, dedicated people on our side who get to know farm businesses really well because they come from a high knowledge base to do that, right. and are always this, available to our customers to talk to them. This does all sound extremely positive. If, if, if any farmers are listening and thinking, right, I'd like to have a chat with Tim. I've got a project I want to uh, talk about. Um, how, how can they get in touch with the bank? Sure uh, the, well, they can always visit, visit the website, www.oxbury.com. Uh, they can email findoutabout at oxbury.com. Um, and uh, yeah, make, make contact and someone will be in touch very quickly to talk about what their requirements are. Okay. What about the rest of us that aren't farmers? Do you, do you have, can I get an account with you? Uh, we do savings account for the general public, so uh, we, you know, can make a pretty simple claim that actually any funds saved with us that's supporting uh, the future of British agriculture. That's what we do. We don't lend to anyone uh, who's not involved in farming, food production, and, and the rural economy. Um, so yeah, absolutely, it's, it's something that's open for everyone to be involved in. Uh, involved in that, we have a, a range of a range of personal savings products available again on our website. Perfect. All right. All this sounds very interesting and, and, and very positive for the future, I think. So, Tim, thank you very much indeed for chatting. Thanks, Mike. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. It used to be hard to find the world's most wonderful alcohol-free drinks. Not anymore. Whether it's a health thing, a lifestyle thing, or you're trying new things, make sure you save yourself from the guessing game of the supermarket shelves and shop with zerozilchsip.co.uk for the world's most carefully curated range of alcohol-free beers, wines, spirits, and more. Health Radio listeners can save 5% using the code HEALTH5. Visit zerozilchsip.co.uk because nothing's better. The station that makes you feel good. Next, I welcome back Catherine Quinn. She's been on the show before. She is president of the British Chiropractic Association and clinical director at Cleve Chiropractors. We talk about how much of GP's time is taken up with MSKs and how the first contact practitioner system can maybe help with this but first of all I asked her actually what is an MSK? 
Well, hello, Mike. Thank you so much for having me again. So, yeah, so this Chiropractic Awareness Week, we're uh, looking to stand up for the causes we're passionate about in, uh, in chiropractic and providing care for MSK conditions, which are musculoskeletal conditions, which is anything from joints, muscles, tendons, ligaments, all the moving parts of your body. So we want to raise awareness. Oh, I've got a bad back or I've hurt my knee, that kind of thing. Exactly that. The ones that hurt generally and stop you moving and doing all the things you want to do. So we want to really raise awareness about how chiropractic can play a role in supporting people's MSK health. And uh, particularly this week, we're looking to shine a spotlight on how we can work more closely with our primary care providers like the NHS, because there are huge pressures um, on the NHS to hit targets and they've got large patient rosters. And we're looking to help alleviate those waiting times by firstly, as you've mentioned, the, the first contact practitioner role, um, but also the role that the private practice can play to, to help alleviate that pressure. OK, so just how many of us? Go, this is a bit of an unfair question, by the way, as, as a warning, but I specialise in that. How many of us, does anyone know, go to the GP with a bad back, with an MSK? We do know this. So if we talk more widely about MSK conditions, so all of those ouchy, hurty things that you've discussed, we know that there are roughly 17.8 million people who are living with these MSK conditions. That's about 30% of the total population. And that matches with the amount of um, GP visits. So we know that about 30% of GP visits are for uh, these MSK conditions. So it's placing a huge pressure on the system. Okay. Um, now, a GP consultation will have an amount of money associated with it, I'm sure. Um, that's going to be a massive sum of money. 30% of GP consultations in the UK. What does that cost? Gosh, I don't have that figure to hand right now. But um, what we know is that there's a long waiting list. And I think that, you know, regardless of the amount of money that's spent on, on these conditions, actually getting the patients who need the care into the room to get the care they need is one of the bigger problems. So the waiting time for me um, is, is the key issue to address. And that's helping, you know, not helping patients to get the care they need as quickly as possible, which with an MSK condition, the sooner you can address some of these issues, the less costly the care sure. will be. Yeah, all right. Um, get, get to it quickly and, and it'll be cheaper in the long run. All right. So I, I must admit, before our chat, I did a bit of a Google. And mm -hmm. um, now doing a bit of a Google can be a dangerous thing. All right. But I, I got a figure and I must admit, I'm not exactly sure where this came from other than Googling about. Uh, and it's quite an old figure. In 2004, £141 million pounds was spent on GP consultations just for back pain. You know, so <laughs> this is not a small issue. So anything that can be done to um, reduce cost, make things happen a bit faster and ultimately relieve pain and suffering has, has got to be a good thing. So, <laughs> Catherine, what's the plan? <laughs> well, there's lots of things in progress already with this. So we'll start on the NHS system and the role of the FCP, the first contact practitioner uh, that you discussed. So first contact practitioners are uh, healthcare professionals who can provide a first point of contact patients with these MSK conditions. So instead of a patient having to make an appointment with or see the GP first off, they can see a first contact practitioner within their GP practice. So these are 
highly skilled, trained, regulated healthcare professionals, including chiropractors, but also including um, physiotherapists who can provide the triage, the assessment and the initial diagnosis to make sure that patients are brought into the right stream of care. And we know that it is reducing the amount of inappropriate secondary referrals. So for a GP, you know, MSK conditions are maybe not there their kind of specialty they, you know they, they serve such fantastic services to their communities but msk conditions are quite specific and specialized and we know that a lot of patients are ending up having um orthopedic referrals and mri referrals when actually a little bit of hands-on conservative care in the early stages including exercise prescription could really stop them from having to go down these routes so okay, the FC- so it could save money and it could also get the problem solved a bit quicker Exactly that. So it's great for um, NHS resources and also great for the patient in the room at the time. So tell me, is is the the chiropractor or the physio, are they in the same building as the GP practice? Yeah, they they often would be. They would be within the the GP surgery itself. Um, We've got members who are doing exactly that. There are also um, examples of people doing FCP services in more community settings. But uh, yes, generally, you would find the FCP in the the GP surgery. So how does the system work? So say I get up one morning and I can't jump out of bed because, ah, you know, the back's gone again. I kind of hobble to the phone call the GP and say, uh, talk to to the receptionist, make an appointment uh, and say, I need to see the chiropractor, not the GP. Is that that Mm -hmm. how it will work? Well, it depends on which GP service you're in as to what sort of healthcare professional would be providing the FCP role. So we know that we we have four chiropractors around the country who are providing this FCP service. So if you're fortunate enough to be in one of those areas, then you may well see the chiropractor. If you're in a service that's providing a physiotherapist in this role, then it would be the physiotherapist that you see. But um, yeah call your GP and they would um, triage kind of, you know, with the, with the receptionist, they would make sure that you are getting into the, the right stream within the, uh, within the GP surgeries, so whether that be the GP, a nurse or the FCP. Well, actually, that's what I was really going to ask about, because there's an element of kind of self-diagnosis. Um, and is, could that lead to missing of sort of serious problems? Because although it's rare, back pain can be caused by, you know, something that could be really quite serious. You know, it could be a tumour somewhere or, you know. Absolutely. It's such a good question. So what's important to remember here is that everyone providing the FCP service, including chiropractors, are regulated healthcare professionals. This means that the chiropractor or whoever's providing the FCP service is educated to a standard by which they are trained and skilled in assessing people for exactly these conditions. So in private practice as well, when we're taking the patient's history, when we're assessing them initially before we decide on a plan of management, we are ruling in and out all sorts of red flags, yellow flags for that diagnosis. And things like you mentioned, tumours, there's other, there's other lots, lots of other conditions which can cause back pain, which are from a more um, malignant or kind of serious cause. But we are well trained and able to identify these both in the NHS or in private practice settings. And uh, I'd say that you'd you would find that chiropractors and physiotherapists offering this role are very well placed to to pick these things up. So that they would then refer on to 
the, the correct doctor that's yeah. the, the correct place in the hospital if they suspected something more yeah. sinister so with an fcp role it would then go through the gp service again so if i was to be um assessing someone and, and this is in a private practice world it would be exactly the same process if i pick something up in a history or an assessment of a patient in my practice that I feel is actually indicating a red flag, a tumour and infection, something that needs further investigation, I, even in private practice world, would refer that back through into the NHS setting via the GP or straight into A&E, depending on what the issue is, and make sure that that patient then gets into the right stream for their care. So in an FCP setting, that happens even more smoothly. You've got, you know, you're all in the same building. So I would, in private practice, write a letter, send the patient off to get these things. Or if it's very, very serious, you can you can call an ambulance, you can send them straight to A&E. But in FCP setting, they're in the building, they're in the room. So you can refer within the system back in to make sure that they're getting the right care but we know that most back pain is is not this kind of serious um serious causes but it is always um at the forefront of our mind when we're assessing so the, the system is of this this fcp first contact practitioner is up and running as we speak is it catherine Yes, it is. So there are multiple um, FCP services running all up and down the country. As I mentioned, there are four chiropractors providing this service at the moment. And um, there are many more physiotherapists and nurses and paramedics who have all been trained into providing these FCP roles. And it's important to note um, FCP is not just about MSK conditions. It does cover a, a kind of a wide range of, um, of conditions. But if it's for an MSK condition, that's the sort of practitioner that you would be seeing. OK, so is there some data on you know, how the system is working, where, where, you know, where it's up and running, how it's yeah, working, it's how much time it's saving, how much pain is it stopping? Yeah, so we know that we're getting great results with the FCP service. So MSK patients uh, specifically are seeing much shorter waiting times for their treatment. And that can be as little as two to three days. And we know that with the huge pressures that are put on NHS services at the moment, even just getting a GP appointment can take far, far longer than that. So if we're able to take this chunk of patients, these MSK patients, get them seen within two to three days, as the research is showing, then it means that the um, patient is getting care much more quickly and it's taking away that uh, that patient load from the, the GP service. Sure. All right. That, that, all, all this is very good news. How many places around the country is this FCP first contact practitioner up and running? You mentioned there it's happening. Uh, well, there are four chiropractors embedded in GP surgeries. Um, but in, in general, generally speaking, how widespread is it around the country? You'll find this across um, nationally, across across the NHS. So they're rolling this this scheme out across all um, primary care settings. And um, we've just actually had to. So our university, uh, the AECC, has just been um kind of selected as one of three FCP training facilities. So we are getting more and more people trained up in delivering this service. And we're delighted that one of the well, the, the oldest and largest chiropractic institution in the UK and in England is providing the education of this across not just chiropractors, but across all um, healthcare professionals. Okay. All right. Let me ask another question, which in some ways it's related to what I've already asked, but it's kind of slightly different. What about comorbidities? Because often 
a, a patient will go and see a GP and the GP will will know them and you know from years gone by know that actually they've got high blood pressure so suddenly starting playing football or whatever if they have a football injury might not be a great thing and the GP might say you know should you really be playing football with your high blood pressure you know th these sorts of things so can the FCP be in the same situation and and sort of be in the right place to just know and worry about comorbidities yeah, absolutely. So especially if you're in an FCP role within the NHS, you would have the patient's notes in front right. of you, you know, historically through what they've um, been at the GP practice for. But um, even in private practice, you know, we will take these sort of vital signs. We will assess blood pressure. We will ask about height and weight and, you know, understand BMI and understand smoking status, all sorts of things, which um, the GP loves to get information from us on from this they there are some statistics that they like to monitor on on all of us to make sure that we're we're fit and well and things like smoking status bmi blood pressure are things that we would monitor in private practice and inform the gp about uh, to help keep that patient record up to date but um, yes if you're in an fcp role you'd have access to all of that and again as i mentioned our, our education is is all there to provide us with the skills to be able to take into account all of these comorbidities ad advise on healthy lifestyle advise on how to get into a healthier lifestyle and you're right if someone wants to pick up sports straight away and you know we, we can understand their history a little bit better we can advise them on how to get into that safely slowly building up their load and making sure that they're not going to um, sustain another injury it's business as usual, really, because it's kind of what you always do. Absolutely. This is something that we're really well versed on doing in, in private practice. And we've done since our kind of uh, undergraduate and uh, master's level training. I've got to say, the whole system sounds like common sense. And I'm thinking, <laughs> why wasn't this done years ago? Because it, it, it just seems a very sensible thing to do. So let, let's hope it sort of beds in well and becomes available uh, everywhere so people can take advantage of it because you know there is nothing worse than having a bad back or suffering from sciatica or you know it's just it's just horrible yeah. it ruins a lot of people's lives we need more awareness of these sorts of systems and um whilst the fcp roles are fantastic it's remembering that there are multiple options for people to to access this sort of care you know if if your area isn't providing an fcp role yet or you're struggling to get through remembering that there are options for you to seek this sort of care quickly and efficiently in your community and you'll find chiropractors who are there offering this sort of service able to help you when you're kind of in that as you mentioned that very ouchy situation of, uh, of back pain and, and struggling if you want to get back moving quickly you know this is a profession that can really help you to do that okay very good let me ask you another question which actually is off topic so again, mm -hmm. apologies uh, for this. One of the symptoms of long COVID or COVID actually is sometimes joint pain and even I heard muscle pain as well. Have you had patients come to you complaining of that? And have you been able to do anything to help people with COVID and long COVID? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, uh, mentioning long COVID, um, again, there's a, a big study ongoing at the moment around long COVID and there is a long COVID clinic, again, based at the AECC in Bournemouth, our one of our educational institutions. So 
the chiropractic profession is very involved in looking at how we can assess and help with long COVID um, moving forward. But more anecdotally, yeah, actually, as, as soon as you said it, it reminded me yesterday of a couple that I'm treating and um, a couple, they're both in their 60s, active, fit and healthy, and saw them both yesterday for, um, for, for back pain and other things that I monitor them for. And they both have had COVID in the last month and were both talking about this excessive joint pain they said every joint that had you know that had been hurting before hurt a lot more while they while they were testing positive for covid and kind of in the week afterwards so you know we we were very much focused on getting those areas moving properly and we were able to relieve some of the the tension and pressure that had built up they had felt kind of into their body through covid and COVID specifically, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how the statistics roll out in terms of um, side effects and what people are uh, experiencing. But with all of these sorts of viral illnesses, we know that your whole body can be affected. And so it's not uncommon to experience increased joint pains and, and muscle ache after these sorts of um, these sorts of illnesses. So, yeah, we're able to, to certainly work with patients to help them get back to feeling fully fit again. As, as far as that sort of question for COVID is concerned, it's probably quite early days. So uh, maybe I will invite you back in a, in, a, in a while to talk about that specifically. But just to finish with, if you wake up in the morning, your back hurts, your back's gone, and you think, right, I'd like to take advantage of this FCP idea, or if there's no FCP available, what do you do? What's the advice? First thing, who do you call? <laughs> First thing to do is don't panic. Stay calm. Gently try and move, get yourself a cup of water, get some hydration into you. Next thing you do is you can call your um, GP if that's the route that you you need to take and see if they have services available for you. But what I would suggest you do is you go on to the Find a Chiropractor page on the British Chiropractic Association and you find a chiropractor near you. There are chiropractors up and down the country who are providing this sort of care day in, day out for their patients and they will be able to assess you make sure that you've got your kind of um your plan of management in place to make sure that you've got some active care and some passive care so things we can do to help you things you can do to help yourself and get you out of pain nice and quickly and make sure that there's nothing more serious going on excellent good advice Catherine thank you very much indeed for chatting a pleasure as always pleasure thank you so much Mike Thank you very much to my guests on this week's show and they were Tim Coates, co-founder of the Oxbury Bank and Catherine Quinn, president of the British Chiropractic Association and of course, thank you to you for listening. That was the Relax Back UK show with me, Mike Dill. Thank you for listening and please do join us again next time.